but as a result of sort of you know, a lifelong struggle with my body and with food, I simply don't weigh myself anymore. And I knew this had to be when I remember this was right before I went vegan. It was just a few months before. I remember it was August of 2015. And I got on that scale for the 17th time. And it hadn't budged all day, despite not eating, doing all these things that I had been told in order to lose weight. And I remember squatting on that scale and I just burst into tears and I just started sobbing and thinking to myself, this, this is something's broken about this. This is not right. Like this thing that I'm experiencing right now, this is, this is very wrong. That's when I started to see a therapist for you know disordered eating and luckily thank god a few months later i turned to a plant-based diet which opened up this new world of intentional eating eating for something that had nothing to do with the number on the scale that is joanne molinaro and you awesome legends are listening to the epic table podcast welcome back you epic people And we have another awesome and exciting podcast today. I just want to acknowledge all of you who reached out with further questions on last week's episode with Ross McKay, the CEO and founder of Daring. After having him on, uh, I know a lot of you have always heard me speak about the world of the plant-based industry, particularly that now I've got products out there uh, and we're exploring exploring those further opportunities. Someone like Ross and what his company Daring are doing in building a plant chicken opportunity is truly exciting. And I know some of you um, who are either trying to eat more plants or you're just interested in that space were hitting me up with questions and uh, you know more insightful knowledge even from your own perspective and I really appreciate that that means uh, it means that I can have these further conversations with you I can learn from you but also um, I get to truly uh, connect with all of you as well so continue to do so means a lot and I know a lot of you really enjoyed learning more about the industry and where we think the future is going uh, with the plant-based products uh, and, and and as I said like even when I'm not plant-based I still have things like daring uh, that I find are doing wonders to the world. In this week's episode team, I have the absolute pleasure of sitting down with Joanne Molinaro. She's also known as the Korean vegan. And she has, uh, in her young age, an amazing life story. Someone who initially became a lawyer um, and still uh, is involved to this day, has been able to find herself in the world of media through socials. She's an author of an amazing book, uh, which all, which you're about to hear, is a catalyst of a, a couple of TikTok videos. But it's one thing to go viral over a couple of videos as such. It's another thing to maintain a value for an audience. And she has a tremendous way of sharing knowledge, telling a story through her work. And if you have not already, go go check out what I'm talking about. Go to, uh, sorry, go to TikTok, go to uh, Instagram, and of course, YouTube as well. And you'll find that this wonderful lady is talking about current affairs in a way through food that is... Uh, so open and honest and I really really just um, you know it blows me away it's really really awesome some of the things that uh, you know are women issues that I 
you know, just she opens up in a way that's so honest and uh, easy to, to you know, talk about, which is really, really cool. We also talk about her Korean heritage and how that played any, uh, you know, a way of perspective for her as she progressed, particularly professionally, what that meant through schooling as well. We touch on her transition from paleo to plant-based and how paleo was such a stronghold on her life at uh, one point. I know personally it's something I can relate to as well, whereas I was not having uh, any grains, I really uh, didn't have pasta on those kind of things for a period of time. And when I truly stepped back and had a look at uh, myself and obviously um, physically and emotionally, I was like, okay, well, I think this this is probably not for me, but it's really more and more importantly about uh, you know the Korean vegan, Joanne. She had a really cool way of telling that story as well and also led to other factors in her life as well. Uh, so she's a runner and she truly is someone who tells uh, her story through her lens of food. So that was really, really epic as well. We do talk on uh, body uh, or even eating disorders and whatnot and how she combats that, which is really exciting. You know I love when people are truly open about this topic and what we can learn from them. It is a tremendous podcast and be that as it may, I did not even realize, but we were about an hour and a half in. I looked at the clock and I was uh, astounded at how quickly the time had flew purely because I was just enjoying the conversation. So uh, you are going to be listening to this probably in a couple transitions from your home to uh, work and back, which is totally fine by me. It means you and I get to hang out more. Uh, But I also just want to note that it is a longer podcast than usual, um, which means, yay, you get to listen to Joanne speak absolute wonders. So team, get ready for some knowledge bombs. I'm really excited to learn from today's episode. Before we begin, team, here's a little follow-up to last week's note on vitamin D. As we discussed, vitamin D is something the body produces once uh, you come in sunlight, or come in contact with sunlight, rather. So we use that to help absorb calcium, amongst other things, uh, and calcium is obviously integral to so many things that are going on in our system. Questions around K2, because people are asking about the athletic greens that comes with the vitamin D3 plus the K2. Now, K2 is a vitamin that typically uh, is produced by in, in cows' stomachs, that they convert K1 to K2 once they're grass-fed. So they have grass, they convert the grass, uh, well, they use that from K1 to K2. So it converts in the stomach from K1 to K2. Why K2 is really important. Once the calcium gets to the site, whether it be bones or the teeth, to help build them stronger, you need something to activate it. So the best way that I put this is if you were uh, working uh, in the cement world, in the cement industry, if you take the cement truck to the site where you're building, say, a house, but you just stand there um, and the cement goes nowhere, in fact, it probably will harden in your cement truck after a while. What you will need is someone to activate and press the button to allow the cement to come out, okay? And that's exactly what uh, effectively K2 does. It activates calcium at the site. So once again, this is why it's so important to have a variety of all our essential vitamins and minerals daily because what will happen is that while one thing's important to an aspect or a system, you do need all of these things to work for that one vitamin to be uh, doing its role. Hence why I talk about you know proteins, fats, and carbs as obviously being super important to us. They're essential, but without a lot of the micronutrients, they will not be able to do their job. 
Uh, and so in this case, when I talked about the vitamin D3 plus the K2 that you get in that droplet from Athletic Greens, uh, you were interested to learn more about the K2. So that's the kind of role with it. Now, if you have a supplement that's not vitamin D3 plus K2, you can get K2 as a separate sup. Uh, if you are plant-based, you can still also get that as well. What I would say is if you have not subscribed to Athletic Greens yet, you do get the vitamin D3 plus K2 for free along with your subscription pack. So all you need to do is go to athleticgreens.com forward slash epic and you can pick up that uh, subscription pack which comes with your mon- monthly powder goodness the five free travel packs and that vitamin d3 plus k2 so if you're looking to get more vitamin d in your life uh, maybe you're in the northern hemisphere right now during winter it is something i would definitely recommend and more on athletic greens later because i know people have been asking me how much it will well, why it has blown up so much recently it's because people like you legends of the epic table um have truly believed in how good it is so uh kudos to all of you but that is the, I guess, in a nutshell, um, K2 and its role amongst other things that it does. So I'm going to go get my shaker, make some athletic greens. And now you guys are going to listen to the wonderful Joanne Molinaro, also known as the Korean vegan. Joanne Lee Molinaro, aka the Korean vegan. Welcome to the Epi Table podcast. Well, thank you for having me, Dan. I'm so excited to be at the uh, Epicest Table. <laughs> oh, just couldn't have put my introduction any better. That's uh, that is honestly the way we like to describe this show. And what's um, what's really cool about having you on is it's always awesome when I'm a fan, um, and I am a massive fan. But when the rest of the Epic Table team are just you know, I'm almost filtering a lot of the questions through from them um, to, to, you know, get your amazing voice and heard. So um, it's an honor to have you today. And it's really, I just want to say straight about your your career trajectory is super inspiring um, on, on many levels. There's so many ins and outs, but yeah, we're, we're massive fans. So thank you so much for joining us. And you are, you're currently in Chicago. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. So What's your thoughts on deep dish pizza being a Korean vegan? (laughs) So I actually just wrote about this the other day. I'm a big fan of deep dish pizza. Unfortunately, I haven't really had much since going (laughs) vegan. Um, But prior to going vegan, I actually worked. uh, I think my one of my first jobs was as a co-hostess at a pizza parlor in Chicago. And so I became sort of an aficionado at the deep dish pizza. And I've been a fan ever since. Again, I don't delight in it quite as often as I used to, but that is uh, that is me. I like deep dish. Well, the fact that you have a genuine perspective despite being plant-based means I feel like you have somewhat of a great skill set towards it. So <laughs> I'm going to ask, a, we're actually going to dive into this for a second because I'm a, I'm just an interested, curious individual with this area because I feel there's so many things and facets to, there's a science of cooking. And if I look at the crust of a deep dish pizza, which we know is different depending on uh, which mm-hmm. awesome restaurant location you go to, I just feel it's so fascinating. So if we look at, say, Illuminati's, is that one of the more prevalent and well-known places in Chicago, I'm assuming? Absolutely. I actually uh, went to high school with the family, the Lumalnati family. So every single Latin club meeting <laughs> ended with Lumalnati's pizza. Uh, that sounds 
Absolutely terrible. I wish I was. Uh, I wish I grew up in Chicago a bit more. That would have been. <laughs> I'd probably be a little bit heavier uh, and have even more understanding of deep dish pizza. But uh, no, that's, uh, that sounds that sounds awesome. So say Illuminati's pizza that I've I've had once and it was awesome. Um, I made the excited mistake of feeling I could take down a whole pie. Mm. <laughs> I did, but I also uh, I didn't feel very well afterwards now. Um, so I'm not going to go into the details of DJ's Pizza in terms of what it is because I feel a lot of people do. But can you just speak to the crust for a second because this, this fascinates me. So is the crust got butter in it or does it not? Uh, you know, to be honest, I – it depends on the pizzeria. I don't know for sure Luminati's. I do know they have a vegan deep dish pizza there because I've had it. Oh. So, or at least they did at, at a certain point. So I imagine then their crust is vegan or can be made vegan. Mm. The reason I think Lumalnati is so successful twofold, right? Number one are the fresh tomatoes that they add to their sauce. So if you ever get one of their pizzas, it's actually covered in slices of beautiful fresh tomatoes. The second thing that is really emblematic of a Lumalnati's pizza is the, you know, beautiful crust, which is very light, almost like um, kind of crackery. Uh, it's got that sort of like croutony, crackery sort of texture, as opposed to being overly doughy and heavy, which has a tendency to get very, very stale and hard um, and not pleasant. Yeah. So <laughs> this, is, this is exactly what I wanted you to describe it because I feel like <laughs> you would have it from a genuine perspective. I feel like I'm listening to the Chicago Tribune or like someone from the New York Times describing. <laughs> and this is just, I mean, I'm currently vegan right now. So this is, uh, this is uh, very interesting for us to be discussing this straight off the bat, but it creates presence. We love that. And if oh, you do get to, if we do get Chicago, I definitely recommend uh, having a deep dish pizza. It's a great experience. And if you are plant-based, hopefully that uh, Luminati still has that deep dish pizza. Now, in terms of um, Chicago is a great town. It has a huge sporting pedigree. Has your, would you have a, you know, do you have a, your White Sox, your Cubs, your Bears fan? I would say that I am um – you know, the thing is, like, I'm not as into baseball ever since the Bartman incident. Yes, I had. I was. I was so devastated by that entire situation that I basically stopped watching baseball after that. However, push comes to shove, I am a Cubs fan. I come from a Cubs family, I would say, and uh, you know, I watched the Bears play for a very long time, pretty seriously, and was very much into the NFL. Sort of not as much since COVID, um, but I can still talk football with uh, with the the best of them. I would say. Yeah, I reckon you're above average for sure. <laughs> you're also an avid runner, so I'm sure that's part of the chat that you have on your long marathon runs. Anyway, oh, and, you know, obviously over the weekend, or who's you know doing well, who's doing not. But that does bring me to my next point of of being uh, an epic marathon runner. I love the fact how it's. You've got this amazing um, – some people typically have, uh, how do I put it, like a Superman you know, alias of just one other. I feel like you've got at least three. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's lawyer by day, marathon by night, and then a plant-based chef by what, <laughs> early morning? What do you, how do you put that? You know, it's um – 
it's a, it's a function of shifting priorities, right? <laughs> it's like you move blocks around, kind of like Tetris a little bit. You sure. move blocks around. But at the end of the day, I'm always guided by my values and the priorities that sort of arise as a result of those values. Yeah, of course. And this is huge. So big into values, big into fundamentals and core beliefs. So growing up, you were born in Chicago to parents of, and I believe, is it, was it North Korea or was it South Korea? Whereabouts was it? So it's uh, interesting. It's a little ambiguous. Both my parents were definitely born in what is now known as North Korea. My father was born before it was you know, designated as North Korea because it was still one whole peninsula. Mm. My mother was born, you know, probably shortly after the two, you know, halves uh, became created as a result of the 38th parallel. So they quickly, however, fled uh, shortly after they were born, maybe a year or two after they were born and moved into South Korea. So I think in their minds, they consider themselves to be born in North Korea, but South Korean. Okay, so I've been to South Korea uh, twice. I've actually been I've been to Pyeongchang. Now, how far is Pyeongchang from North Korea? I literally have no idea. Geography, <laughs> is, like you know how I don't know if you've ever watched um, Sherlock. I'm a huge Sherlock fan, Massive. but you know he's just like he knows all of these things and then has these like really ridiculous, <laughs> absurd gaps in knowledge. Geography is my big gap in knowledge. Okay, I don't. I'm really bad at geography. <laughs> but you're also out of him to to be vulnerable, which obviously is a huge value of how you're honest throughout your work. So I love Gotta that be. too. <laughs> well, I've. Uh, uh, anyway, I've witnessed, I've been to Pyeongchang and to my knowledge, someone someone did tell me, and I don't know, if it was pretty close to North Korea, but I was in the mountains, so obviously where the, the ski alps were. And I've been to Korea in general. And I think the food I was exposed to there, and whenever I travel, I, I do try and not go where like the the Time Out magazines tells mm-hmm. you you go. I, I like to look off, you know, speak to someone of knowledge who's been there, lived there or whatever. And I just found um, the rural, uh, you know, food cuisine just amazing and fascinating. A lot of fermentation, a lot of developed uh, palate-like textures and, and um, aromas I probably wouldn't have experienced previously. Uh, but it, it's always been a fascinating thing to me to, to hear people growing up or being of Korean descent and then particularly moving to Western cultures and, and hearing how their palate has either changed, adapted or um, completely kind of just stayed the same. So for you, and obviously this is, a, this is I don't want to go too far into the future, but Growing up, did you have a, a huge Korean food influence or are you more of this Western, Western um, you know, establishment? No, not the latter. Mm. So it was basically Korean food 90% of the time. And that was not my choice. That was my family's <laughs> choice. That was my parents and my grandparents. My grandmothers lived with us. And, you know, of course, that's all they knew to make. To the extent that we had some American food kind of trickle into our diet, it was largely by accident or through special occasions. Otherwise, we were eating the food that my parents grew up eating when they were in high school and college and later in life. I think one of the most amazing dishes on this planet is bibimbap. Uh, <laughs> did I pronounce that correctly? Bibimbap? Bibimbap, pretty good. No. I just, okay, first and foremost, I didn't do it justice, but tell me, I'll tell you this, the 
the contrast to my ability to pronounce it is the flavor of this amazing <laughs> dish. And just, I love how it's uh, it's built of rice, a lot of uh, ferment, you've got kimchi in there. There's a lot of veggies if, if you wish. And you can have some uh, protein. Is it tofu or assorted animal-based protein as well? Yes. It's delicious. I actually, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not ashamed to say this, but I first had this and loved it on a flight Korean air. Uh, so yeah. like, I was like, well, this actually is a pretty good dish for <laughs> plain food. So, and then I, I had it like every single day when I got to uh, Korea and it just was even, even better. But yeah, I think for me, that was like my first, you know, um, I guess experience into Korean cooking. Um, everyone here knows Korean food from Korean barbecue, in my opinion. You know, you've got some amazing restaurants here. Uh, friends of mine who are also food council members of City Harvest have amazing restaurants in, in Nomad in our Las Vegas. So I I see Korean, the word Korean being used, but I don't know if it's still of existing descent of like the, 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 you know, the cuisine of where your parents and even you would have grown up with. But we'll go into that in a second. I, I love the fact you did bring up values and, and whatnot pretty early on because I love how, I don't want to say the word outspoken. I just think honest. I think you just, you tell it how it is. And I think a lot of your storytelling, you use food as a medium for storytelling and education in, in a number of different things in society, which I absolutely love. Mm-hmm. Um, that you are someone who is very compassionate and you, <laughs> you use your platform to spread that compassion, which is really, really cool. Like it's a... I've always seen food as that connector, right? And everyone says it, but you use it in a really, really, really cool, like safe way, which is really, really like I, I think I was watching a, a blueberry, what was it, a blueberry muffin or something, blueberry, mm. what was it doing the other day? Yeah, it was, uh, I think you must have seen it on YouTube. It That's would have right. been my blueberry muffin video, um, which is kind of talking about my egg freezing journey. Yeah, I mean, who would have just thought of putting uh, a voiceover over the top of something that just like the comfort and the love of baking and you put something that can be quite a a vulnerable topic and something that is somewhat uh, scary for so many people but you made it so approachable and you used a warming nostalgic moment of muffins mm-hmm. to make people excited and totally fine by it so I think that's just a pure representation of your awesome content that this came about like your whole content thing so you started your blog in 2016 right that's correct. so prior to that you were, were you a full-time you're a full-time lawyer right I was a full-time lawyer starting in 2004 all the way through to October of this past year. Okay. So where did you do your degrees? I'm always interested in this stuff. Where did yeah. you do your degrees? So I went to the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign for my undergrad, received a BA in English, and went to law school at the University of Chicago and graduated in 2004. Awesome. And straight into it. So do you go paralegal straight in? How's that work? Is that how, I'm so ignorant. I'm so sorry. Yeah. No. So I, you know, I actually was a paralegal, but that's not necessary in the United States in order to become an attorney. Right. I um, graduated a year early from college and kind of was like experimenting with like, what do I want to do? And one of the jobs I took up was a paralegal. And from that point, I realized, okay, might as well go through the full thing and become a lawyer and went to law school after a year of that. And yeah, I I had a couple internships and accepted a full-time position after my second year of law school so that it was waiting for me when I graduated. So interestingly, when you when you first applied to doing law as uh, you know studying it, what was the what was the motivation, or why were you excited, or you know what was the path, what was the decision there? 
I have to be honest, Dan, there was no excitement. Mm -hmm. It was pure fear and panic and anxiety. I, you know, I had just graduated from college and I graduated a year early and I did it with zero intention about being an adult or having a job or being gainfully employed. I simply wanted to be closer to my boyfriend who lived in Chicago and I lived in Urbana. So I wanted to get the heck out of school. That was all I was thinking about. And then I get out of school and I'm like, oh my God, (laughs) I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And so I pretty much panicked and started looking for like career paths. And I stumbled upon a resume of an attorney. I was a resume writer during that was one of my in-between jobs. And I was like, oh, yeah, I could be a lawyer. Why don't I just do that? So I looked for, you know, the law schools that were in Chicago, Illinois, because I refused to leave at that time, because again, my boyfriend was there. I applied to two of them, got into both, and the rest is history. I, I wish I could say there was more intention I think there probably was on an unconscious level, you know, I've always been very vocal and I've always been sort of moved by the idea of protecting people and advocating. But honestly, the biggest emotion that I remember at that time was fear. That's, you know, it's an amazing, it's an amazing instigator for movement. Mm-hmm. And here I was thinking that you were going to say, well, I watched Legally Blonde and <laughs> I wanted to, I wanted to go to Harvard. That's exactly what I wanted to do. You know, I'm, I'm a little bit older than that. So I think actually Legally Blonde came out after because I remember like, ooh, she did pretty good on her LSAT because I compared it to mine. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, you look, you look very well. Actually, everyone thinks you look very young, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> um, so, okay, great. So this is awesome. So you, you, you went up there and I like, will address the fact out of fear, out of, was it <clears throat> in a way going, you, you wanted to follow a path that would help you get somewhere with uh, geographically, or is it the fact that you were scared to do anything but something that would be leading to a success? I think it was the latter, Dan. I think you, you know, hit the nail right on the head. My parents had instilled in me sort of a latent anxiety about financial security and, you know, success and all that's wrapped into that word. And as a result, I felt always afraid if I didn't step towards whatever it is that my parents had defined for me as successful. And I think it was just sort of this instinct in me that I could not ignore, that I really didn't know anything other than that instinct. And did they, in the way that they would, you know, I guess the word is influence, the way they would influence you, would it be verbally or just be through acts that they themselves would do? And as a result, you would just naturally build into the same physical habits that they would do? It was probably both. Mm. Um, You know, there are a lot of different things that they probably did overtly and, you know, maybe um, less obviously, but, you know, in terms of overtly, I mean, they were pretty clear, like you have to major in this. You're not allowed to study this. You're not allowed to do too many music things. You have to do more math and sciencey things. Um, You know, they were constantly pushing me probably since I was like 11 years old to figure out what my college major was going to be. And, you know, what my career path was looking like. And I understand this, like I do. It sounds kind of not fun. And it wasn't. It was awful, actually. But at the same time, given their background and 
the kind of poverty that they knew in their bones, how could you blame them for wanting something that was safe for their children? And then I think just, you know, again, not as obviously, they did have habits. Um, My mother was an incredibly hard worker. I mean, I I barely saw her sometimes because she was working around the clock. She was um, a nurse in the emergency department, and she really worked her way up the ranks until she became a director of that department. My father worked the night shift every single day, you know, from two in the morning till 10 a.m. without complaint. And he did that and still drove me to school sometimes, picked me up, dropped off dinner, all of those things. And, you know, they didn't throw that in my face as in like, you need to do X, Y, and Z because of all these things we've done for you. It was more just, you know, something that I quietly observed and couldn't not take into my heart. Yeah. See, this is uh, very fascinating at this point right here because I've got a couple of questions. I'm I'm trying to think of which one to address first because uh, on one hand, yeah, your, your parents uh, were, their their way of, uh, you know, leading and educating was through their physical habits themselves, making you feel as if this is the way that life is and we are su- supporting you in ways. So the expectation is you should do the same for yourself, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. On the, the, the other side of it though is, are you, do you feel like this is something that was instilled in them from their parents or is it a cultural thing or is it just the way they, they, you know, came over from another country and knew that they had to, they had to work because they felt behind? What, do you know what it would be? I think it's all of those things, Dan. I think that, you know, my understanding of my parents' relationship to their parents, i.e. my grandparents, is somewhat limited. Um, My grandparents mostly passed away before I was in college. And certainly my father's relationship with his father, I know very little of because my grandfather passed away when my dad was still in middle school. Mm. And I think, though, the loss of his father you know, right after a war when the country was still impoverished and when, you know, his mother was essentially a single mom for, you know, all of him, you know, his siblings. I I think all of that sort of kind of goes into why my father believed that scholarship and scholastic achievement was the ticket out, right? Because it was in many ways for him. He did very well in school and he went to Yonsei, which is one of the best universities in Korea, and he obtained a degree there. Um, And I think that that was something that was a huge value to him personally. However, it would be remiss of me not to note that scholastic achievement has been something that's incredibly important to the nation of Korea um, since going back to like, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. I mean, that is one of Korea's core values. So it's a cultural thing. It's a personal thing. It's a family thing. And it's certainly an immigrant thing because, you know, one of the biggest disappointments, I think, for my father was when he arrived in the United States, he discovered that his you know, degree that his family had sacrificed so much for was worth absolutely nothing here in the United States. Isn't that, I I find that so terrible. Like I'm not like, you know, I I understand there's curriculums and, um, and all that, but I, I do hear of some of the smartest minds in their respective country come here and they're just not recognized. And I'm not saying that they have to then start again by any means, but it can 
it, it can be almost like, well, I would have to redo my degree over mm-hmm. here. First have to get in, support myself and being an international student, I have to pay it up front. Um, and that just is like, whoa, that's, that's tough. Like you would ace it <laughs> because yeah. you've already done it. Um, but that's, a, that, yeah, I, I mean, I don't have to go into the obvious discussion on this, but yeah, I just find that really remarkable. It is. It's a tough question, Dan. I mean, it, it you know certainly can devolve into a discussion about immigration and and you know to what degree um, do we need to keep people out, bring people in, all of that stuff. It is a gatekeeping function, right? This idea that certain educational institutions don't have the same weight across the border, um, and I think at that time it was very different, right? You know, this is in the seventies. You know, what a degree from Yonsei means then as opposed mm. to what it would mean today, probably very different things. But, sure. you know, and I think, but again, to your question, I think that is one of the reasons my dad was like obsessed with my grades, like literally obsessed with them. And so my leading question on that is, do you find yourself taking your parents' habits and either, you know, effectively applying them in both a positive and negative spin in your current you know, current uh, professional and personal environment, like where you would be obsessed with certain things like, you know what, maybe I shouldn't have to be, or maybe you are obsessed and as a result that's gotten you where you are to today. I think that I certainly do still um, reflect certain habits, if you will, um, that I learned from my parents. And some of them are really good and help me and others, like you said, can maybe distract me and keep me from keeping my eyes on the goal. I'm very disciplined. I learned that from both my parents. Um, They have very different styles of discipline, but that is a value of mine. I do believe that discipline is something that should be strengthened in order to effectively and efficiently execute on your objectives. And that's something I learned from my mom and my dad. On the other hand, you know, another... (laughs) kind of habit I, I picked up from my mother mostly was this, you know, horrible comparison game. You know, I, I don't know if your parents, did this, my <laughs> mom did this all the time. She was always comparing me to other people in my grade, particularly if they were also Korean and particularly if they were girls. And so she would always be like, how come you're not studying as much as she is? Why aren't you focusing on math instead of music? Why don't you play the violin instead of the saxophone? You know, it was sort of that game. And unfortunately, I'm 42 years old. I'm far removed from that time in my life. And yet that habit is stuck in my brain. And it's something that I have to continuously work at to undo. And is that when you say are you referring to study or is it the thought of the the thought of you not doing enough? It's success. Mm. That is what it is. However you define it, whether it's scholastic achievement, whether it's you know getting that you know job at you know a law firm or you know investment bank or making X amount of dollars a year. I mean. I got to tell you, you know, you've been to Korea a couple of times. I'm not sure you saw this, but, you know, in my experience in in Korean cultures and Korean communities, there's almost no shame when it comes to talking about things that perhaps in Western culture, it's a little taboo to talk about. People talk about how much money did you make? How much money did you spend? How much did it cost? That car that you have in your driving, like all of those things that we're sort of like guessing at, 
I feel like in the Korean circles, like those just come out and, and it's a blatant <laughs> comparison game. Wow. Okay. Well, I'll be sure to... I'll be sure to be prepared on my next trip to Korea, (laughs) (laughs) what the dialogue could be. Um, I think we're all, I'll be honest, I think if I, if I, if I think about my parents and me being a byproduct, my awesome parents, like my mum and dad um, could not be more different in, and that's why it's perfect in my opinion. Uh, Dad, stern, not as emotive, showed love in, shows love in very different ways. And what mum is the typical cuddly, uh, you know, soft and always thoughtful kind of person. And so I think if we all think right now, and I'm including our awesome listeners in right now, there, there are going to be aspects that you personally, like at times I find myself going, oh, I knew I never wanted to do that habit that my dad did. And as a result, I just started doing it. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I'm just like, oh, no, I did it. And actually, fun fact, my um, my two brothers and I, whenever one of us is doing that, we always check each other and say, you just did what dad does. And <laughs> it's, a, it's a pretty funny moment, not going to lie. Well, that's what brothers are for. That's <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly right. Exactly right, Joanne. So you've established yourself in this uh, legal environment, which is awesome. Uh, I love that. And you're obviously crushing it, just no doubt, just crushing it, right? And I'm interested to know where you, like, were you cooking at home? Like, were you cooking? This is always a question for me. Is like, where did you start cooking? So where did Joanne start cooking? I did not do much cooking, to be honest. I was a working professional and honestly didn't have a lot of time or energy to do much cooking. I cooked a little bit right before I went vegan, but that was largely to impress my boyfriend, who's now my husband, and somewhat inspired by my um, late father-in-law, uh, his dad, who was a great cook. He was, you know, born and raised in Rome and, you know, it was so lovely getting to pick his brain about, well, how did you make this amazing pasta and things <laughs> like that. So it was fun to learn from him and to try my hand at it at home and then serve a, you know, a dish of risotto to my Italian. Italian boyfriend and he would be like, oh, this is amazing. And, you know, of course that inspired me to do more. But about a year into our relationship, I would say, uh, maybe a little bit over a year, you know, we both went vegan. And so then it became a necessity. And what was that? Like, was it just curiosity or did you just like watch a couple of movies and like, what was the the prime instigator to go plant-based? The prime impetus was definitely Rich Roll's Finding Ultra. Mm. Uh, A friend of uh, my husband's lent that to him to read and he read it. And at that time, his father was saddled with a number of different autoimmune issues and ultimately succumbed to them and died. So he's reading this book about how this man who is a runner and my husband is an avid runner and athlete completely and radically changed his life, you know, physically, emotionally, spiritually by adopting a plant-based diet. My husband just lost, you know, his best friend, essentially his dad to a host of these, you know, physical ailments. And he's thinking, well, this just makes sense for me. My husband had also been vegetarian for the first 21 years of his life. So being meatless was not something that was at all daunting to him whatsoever. To me, however, 
I was very much opposed to it. I didn't want to go vegan. I I thought it was ridiculous, absurd, and quite frankly, unhealthy. So it was a bit of a fight uh, for at least the first few weeks. And when you say, so you didn't want to go, you thought it was unhealthy. Mm-hmm. What was your relationship when with like being unhealthy? Why did you think plant-based or ve- being vegan was, was being unhealthy? I had a very um, two-dimensional view of wellness. Mm. I thought that health literally could be boiled down to how much you weigh on a scale. That was basically all I cared about. I didn't care about any other thing. I was obsessed with my weight. I would weigh myself 17 times a day. And that's all I cared about. And from my understanding at that time, I was a paleo um, girl. I thought carbs were the devil, basically. Um, All carbs were the devil. And the best things to eat were animal proteins and fats. So the idea that this diet, which was almost the antithesis of what I believe to be, quote, healthy, um, was sort of laughable to me. Like I was like, okay, Anthony, you do your little diet there. (laughs) See how far that goes. (laughs) That's so good. I can just imagine. I love you saying that, that now that your your brand is the Korean vegan. <laughs> I know. I'm like I said, I have nothing to hide. I don't I love I, it. yeah, I'm I not love gonna it. like I will be very transparent about all the little mistakes and trip ups and errors that I had along the way. Uh, it's very helpful. So backstory quickly on me. I I'm being being like in the world of high performance and being a chef. Uh, similarly to that perspective is that you have to be having enough protein, which you can only get from animal-based sources, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I feel like probably for the past like eight, nine years, I've been very much involved with eating more plants. Mm. Um, and up until probably like year, last year, I was, yeah, yeah I'd, I'd get the question, can you really build – can you, it, it, no, no, it wasn't a question. It was like the statement, you cannot put on lean muscle on a plant-based diet. And I just get it over and over and over again. I'm like, I just kind of brush it off. I brush it off. And I'm like, I'm not here to tell you you have to be plant-based. I'm just telling you to eat more plants. But yes, mm-hmm. you can get enough protein. They're like, no, you can't. I'm like, okay, all right, here we go. So <laughs> after, the, after the marathon, I'm like, I'm doing this. I'm excited to get back into the gym because um, I'm interested to actually hear your program being the mouth and runner that you are, but I, I just wasn't lifting as much as I was typically, you know, uh, lifting. I was formerly CrossFit after playing rugby and getting into marathon running. I just didn't, uh, I, after doing that, obviously just wasn't lifting as much as I was typically used to. So I was like, okay, I'm going to get back in the gym, but I'm going to put on lean muscle and I'm only going to do it on a plant-based scale. And I'm going to prove that you can do it. You just got to switch your mindset. So, um, I'm interested to hear how you are so saying that's what I'm currently going through. So when you, when you talk about that change, I've definitely been open to it, but I haven't done it yet. And now I'm like, the impetus for me is the people telling me that it cannot be done. So I'm like, okay, you know what? I'm going to show you it can. I'm going to document the whole thing. <laughs> so uh, Yeah. I mean, I think that there is science now that is very – you know, I, I'm not a scientist, but I think it's very encouraging in that regard mm. that, you know, there is scientific observations that suggest that it certainly can be done uh, on a plant-based diet. Anecdotally, I put on a great deal of lean muscle mass, enough 
where the person that I was working with, I used to get one of those um, fat scanning things uh, done every quarter to see, you know, what my, you know, lean muscle mass to fat ratios were. And the amount of muscle mass I was able to build in about two months was sort of astonishing to Mm -hmm. both of us. It was done entirely on a plant-based diet. I mean, you should know, I mean, you know, the fundamentals of building lean muscle mass, of course, certainly protein, but it's, it's really a function of calories. Like you, you have to eat, you know, like that's what it is. And as long as you're very mindful of what those macros are within your caloric framework, I mean, it's, it's almost like math, right? So that was my experience. I, like you know, am a long distance runner. So other than this very short period of time where I too was like, I just want to know, like, can I build lean muscle mass, you know, and I did try it, but it was counterproductive to my goals as a runner. Um, like, I think for me, I felt like you have to be very strategic and careful about what muscles you ultimately develop um, to make sure that you don't somehow end up injuring yourself while you're running long distance because there can be imbalances and all sorts of things that happen and um, kind of pulled away from that. Um, And, you know, obviously as a long distance runner, carbohydrates are certainly my friend. I mean, I I need them (laughs) in order to survive, basically. And I think kind of going back to what I said at the very beginning, I had a very two-dimensional view of what wellness was, which is basically, I just need to see the number on the scale and my reflection in the mirror, and that's it. Bada boom, bada bam, done, right? But now, after going through a series of horrible struggles with my body image and eating and all of those things, I finally realized that my mental health is as big a component of my wellness as my physical health. And I was really depressed and unhappy with the fact that I didn't get to eat rice, potatoes, pasta, bread. It just, it hurt me, you know, it hurt my heart. And so now that I get to enjoy those things, you know, in moderation, you know, reasonably enjoy those things in connection with my marathon training and long distance training, it brings me immense joy and satisfaction. And I'm happy that I get to do that now. Yeah. So I'm just going to highlight here for anyone who uh, has not actually been to Joanne's awesome Instagram or TikTok or anything like that, you can, you can see how young she looks, but if you really need uh, a definition of someone who can build lean muscle and look great and be vegan and look absolutely stunning and young, go to the koreanvegan.com, go to the about page. <laughs> There's an awesome photo of Joanne in it. And it's just like, yep. Okay. I reckon just on that alone, like you, you, I'll talk about Rich in a second, but just on that alone, I reckon it's going to make a lot of women go, okay, I think I should go plant based. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so That's much. That's great. It's really good. But Rich, Rich is, I think, ah, when I had Rich on the podcast, I, I've been very blessed to, to be able to have Rich um, in my corner, like just to chat to in general and, and talk life. And I cannot remember if I recorded this with him, but I wanted to make it clear to him how approachable he has made this plant-based vegan um, lifestyle and how he's done it with no judgment, no, uh, you know, you know, no animosity. It's just, uh, he puts it out there. He's proved through that whole, um, you know, his ability to be an athlete and whatnot. And so hearing yourself, uh, you know, <laughs> be 
absolutely inspired um, in some degree initially and then obviously now a, a lot is awesome and and hearing you on his show is I just want to say it was really cool to hear mm-hmm. how excited you were like you were so excited <laughs> Uh, I was, I was beyond it. I was shaking. I was literally <laughs> shaking. I don't know if you've ever been in that. Maybe you were like that with him, but I mean, he was my hero mm-hmm. and, and to be able to be in the same room with him was like one of the most surreal moments of my life. I was like, I don't, I don't even know how to act right now. <laughs> <laughs> what do I do with my hands? Yeah, like literally. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's credit to you, mate. And it's really cool because yeah, I know, I know coming out of that, there's a lot of like, I knew before that. Uh, and the team obviously did as well, but just seeing that, I know that people have talked about you through, you know, the, the grapevine, obviously after hearing that, and it's just really cool to hear how, as, as I said earlier, how open and vulnerable you are. So, um, if you don't mind, we, I do, I do want to get your, your, like the fact you are talking about that number on a scale, um, 17, whatever times a day, I think this is so important to, to reflect on because what's your perspective now with a relationship with that scale and how do you view your food? I believe that everyone's relationship with food should be different or is different, right? So my limitations aren't necessarily going to be the correct or reasonable limitations for anyone else. But as a result of sort of you know, a lifelong struggle with my body and with food, I simply don't weigh myself anymore. And I knew this had to be when I remember, this was right before I went vegan. It was just a few months before. I remember it was August of 2015. And I got on that scale for the 17th time. And it hadn't budged all day, despite not eating, doing all these things that I had been told in order to lose weight. And I remember squatting on that scale and I just burst into tears and I just started sobbing and thinking to myself, this, this is something's broken about this. This is not right. Like this thing that I'm experiencing right now, this is this is very wrong. That's when I started to see a therapist for, you know, disordered eating. And luckily, thank God, a few months later, I turned to a plant-based diet, which opened up this new world of intentional eating, eating for something that had nothing to do with the number on the scale. I love that. For so many reasons, but I've always said this, and the number on the scale does not reflect your health number. If that makes sense, yeah, it does not. It it, you know, and it it is a shame that for so long, you know, we we were built up and into a habitual nature that jump on the scale, have a look at your weight, and if it didn't drop or if it didn't put up, it was not you. You were not where you were meant to be and it, it sucks because then I've always said I hate I hate numbers I hate numbers I, I hate's a very strong word but I very much dislike mm. numbers because I don't ever want to rank something like for example you know you may be able to do this better than I am Joanne but can you rate rate yourself out of 10 <laughs> oh god no I can't I'm absolutely really not. It. <laughs> absolutely not right yeah. so like so the idea of um having a particular health related to have a number reflect who you are and how healthy you are it just didn't sit well with me. And um, 
I'm really, really, you know, I'm not happy to hear you went through it, but I'm happy. I'm always happy to hear people like yourself who've been through it and are on the other side and can, and be a voice for it. We had one of my dearest friends, her name's Camilla. She's the coach and actually our running coach for our New York city marathon team over mm-hmm. here. She went through, um, a, yeah, a pretty strong bout of, uh, you know, a poor relationship with food and eating disorder. And she came on the show and just talked us all the way through it. And the amount of people that, you know, got in touch, reached out to her and both, I think to be honest, and I, I'll say this very confidently without actually not a, a specific knowledge, it's bigger in blokes because guys feel this need to, uh, you know, shy away from it and not, not, not be vulnerable. So, Oh, I couldn't agree with you more on how men have been conditioned to repress mm-hmm. that sort of pain. It's I've gotten a couple of emails from men over the, the last week who have, indicated to me that they're struggling with body image and eating disorders. And what's so heartbreaking to me is that I know almost nothing about it from a male perspective. And as somebody who struggled with this issue her whole life and is so open about it, it hurts me that I don't know more about it from the male perspective because I feel like my view of it is very limited and my and therefore my ability to help people is also limited. And that that is so sad because I feel like the most dangerous thing about disordered eating is its ability to isolate you and make you feel like you must struggle by yourself when that is a total lie. Do you feel like you don't have the ability to relate and therefore your point would not um, have much value to, to males? I think that clearly it is valuable because otherwise yeah. it wouldn't have resonated with them to the degree that it allowed them to be vulnerable to me. But Sometimes I worry that my messaging could be broader and it isn't broad enough because I'm not as informed about sort of the nuances of the experience from someone else's point of view. I mean, I think that's true of anything, right? Mm -hmm. Anything in life. But I think that to reduce disordered eating and all that comes with that from the male perspective to simply say it's a one-to-one comparison between that and women, it's reductive to men and it's also reductive to women, not to mention it's reductive to non-binary, non-binary people. So I feel like it needs to be a very um, informed sort of understanding of this issue. And like I said, there isn't even a lot of science Um, on this issue, I feel like, because they're just, men have, I think, again, been trained not to talk about it and not to share it. And that is so sad on a number of different levels. Yeah, it's a shame. It's a shame. You know, particularly in the day and age now where mental health is becoming increasingly, uh, you know, it's coming to the fore. But a big part of that, obviously, is body image as well. Like, you know, and anyway, I, I just... Continue to hope people like yourself, um, people who have the voice and um, the confidence to come out and actually just talk about it, uh, continue to do so because it's done It's done absolute wonders for a lot of people. And we'll continue to talk about it on this show. Anyone who does want to talk about it, I'm here. I've had people reach out. You know, Joanne's here obviously as well. It is something that do not be ashamed of. Obviously, it's very common. I know personally, like just straight up personally, I've never admittedly felt um, the need to – 
I think very, very surface level, it's like anything like, oh, I'd love to not have that there, right? Mm-hmm. When I was putting on a bit of extra puppy fat when I was playing rugby or whatever. But it was never at the point where I'm like, I was constantly counting my calories and everything like that. But um, I think we're all got that motion of like, oh, we want to look our best. And there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. But we just got to know where the boundaries are with counting calories and whatnot. And I think I've said this before, one of the biggest learning points I had was hearing someone say, and it was a good friend of mine named Nick Bear, he said, I had an eating disorder and the moment I went from counting my calories and eating from aesthetics to changing it to eating for performance, it was the biggest game changer because then we can enjoy the pastas, the mm. rice, and realize it's going to be epic and we get super excited to go running and work those foods for what they are worth and not have to worry about you know how our body looks because it's going to look great. It's going to look great no matter what we do as long as we continue to have the colorful abundance of this amazingness. So long story short, we're here for you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I agree. I mean, I think that what this conversation sort of brings to mind for me is just how systemic this problem is, particularly in the athletic world, mm-hmm. right? Where young men and young women are being told that they need to eat X amount, weigh in at X amount in order to be considered for, you know, particular, you know, opportunities, yeah. uh, whether it's to be on a team, to run, uh, you know, representing a certain thing. You know, there are all sorts of things, you know, bikini competitions or, you know, physique competitions. There's an industry that is built around these numbers that are rightfully hateful, in my opinion. And, you know, that culture, I feel like, needs to change. I feel like it is being changed thanks to folks like, you know, Mary Kane and other people. Um, But it isn't changing rapidly enough in order to address the sort of you know, rise in mental health issues as it pertains to body image and food. And do you think that would be in order for it to change enough, would it be some drastic things or just be bigger campaigns on awareness as best as we can? Or, um, yeah, I'm just trying to think of, of what we could do. I think awareness is part of it, but I think that, you know, Bravery and courage, like we've seen in some of the people who have come out and said, you know what, let the chips fall where they may. I'm going to be honest about my experience with the big, you know, athletic teams of the world Mm. and, and just be forthright about it. I think that there needs to be more of that. I think that those who continue to participate in sort of this pernicious, um, like sacrifice of mental health to something else, they need to be held accountable, like in a real, real way. I think we're seeing some of that, but ultimately I remember, you know, we were talking about men and eating disorders. I read a blog post. I don't know who it was by, but it was by a very, you know, not like elite elite, but you know, just under elite runner and how he basically refused to eat anything before 6 p.m. He just, he refused to eat anything before 6 p.m. And how he was running a marathon and almost fainted uh, towards the end of it because he hadn't had any calories yet because it wasn't 6 p.m. yet. And I remember reading that and thinking, this is so effed up. Like what sort of incentives have been put in place that this young man believes that he can't eat till 6 p.m. and he needs to run 26.2 miles before that happens? Like, and it was because he was told 
that he needed to weigh in at a certain weight in order to run his fastest. Not only was that like totally misinformed in my opinion, even if it was correct, like why are we sacrificing his mental health as well as probably certain aspects of his physical health just so that he could run a faster time? There's a problem with that. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, that, 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 so unfortunate to hear that because again, it can be improper information. It's not it's very, it's very generalistic. And obviously, to be a certain weight to run certain distances is, you, yeah, anyway. Mm. Oh, that's a shame. It's an absolute shame. And of course, you being a runner, I'm sure you want to jump straight on and be like, look here, mate. Take it from a person of extreme experience. <laughs> that is not that is not the case. So let's definitely talk about your running because it's it's actually quite humble to hear you talk about it. But uh, where did this kind of uh, I'm trying to understand these amazing. I've I've got to put this in perspective. I've got the subway of New York City as the uh, metaphor for your timeline of how things started and stopped in my head. <laughs> and that's the best way I can put an image on it being, you know, going through law, uh, you know, starting to be plant-based. Like what, where did running lie at what point of the, the transition there? So first of all, I would say that I'm, I'm not like an experienced, experienced runner. I run recreationally. I'm not a fast runner. It's just something that I like to do, um, you know, for strength and, and to keep my health kind of where I want it to be from a fitness perspective. And also because it has incredibly meditative qualities, which I absolutely need in my life. I started running again as a function of my very two-dimensional view on health because it would reduce the number of calories that went into my body on any given day and thus help to reduce that number on the scale. That's why I started running back in 2013. And it was effective. I mean, absolutely, cardio is going to be effective, especially if you're going long and steady, which I was, right, as the days wore on. And then when I went plant-based in 2016, and I decided to start running races, you know, more long distance races. Then it really became less about physical fitness and much more about mental toughness. And again, when I say strength, about building mental strength, emotional, spiritual strength, you know, maybe in order to help maintain my physical strength. And what is it that you're running to? I, 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 and I mean that metaphorically because I feel you taught, you really touched on it just then for your mental health. What are you running to? Oh, that's such a great question. And it's something that I've been grappling with a lot over the past few days, actually. I mean, everybody's coming up with resolutions, you know, what are you going to do for 2022? And I've been listening to a lot of podcasts about, you know, values and value sets and what's your value. And I realized that I always like to say compassion and empowerment. Those are the two things that I want the Korean vegan to stand for. And those are, compassion is my number one value, always will be. But there are all of these other values that I sort of take for granted and I really haven't evaluated in a very long time. And one of those is toughness. I view my parents as the toughest, strongest people I know, other than maybe my grandparents, my grandmothers who raised me. I mean, these people in my life, they represent everything that I aspire to from a mental strength perspective. And I feel in my bones that I really don't 
I don't meet up to their standards yet. Like I'm nowhere near as tough as my grandmother's. I'm nowhere near as tough as my mom, who's always kind of been such a giant for me. And so that I think is one of the biggest reasons that I continue to run marathons because I want to be like them. I want to be these mental giants. And then I think the other thing that, you know, I... I sort of use running for is again to almost maintain a peace between myself and my struggle with eating. Uh, You know, I've sort of kind of resigned myself to the fact that there are some hurts that you can't ever heal completely from. And my hurt when it comes to eating and body image, I don't think I'm ever going to heal from that. I think it's going to be the struggle of my life. And kind of being honest about it has allowed me to have some semblance of control over that. And running, that really does help me to at least have something other than, again, my body, like the way that it looks in the mirror, be a driver of how I fuel myself. Yeah, that, yeah, I can I completely understand that. I'm, I do want to double click on a second for the kind of expectation or the comparison between you and your amazing family, just the the toughness part. Do you, I, I guess it's viewing a time of their type of toughness versus now. Do you think that you, what they went through is of higher magnitude and you just don't think you could do it versus, you know, you put them in your situation of what you currently go through with, now being exposed to being in the media and still working the, the jobs that you do and, you know, <laughs> running. Because I'm very interested in that because I feel it's a matter of perspective. It can be. I, I think you're you're right to a degree. Look, my mom's never going to run a marathon. She's four foot 11. She weighs 90 pounds. <laughs> oh, you know, she want to give her a hug. <laughs> yeah, I mean, oh she's a tiny little woman. I mean, she can barely lift a can opener, right? You know, like she's, she's never going to run a marathon. That was never in her. She's never going to be a prima donna at a ballet. I mean, there are a lot of things that she's just physically not equipped to do. So mm-hmm. in some ways, yes. I mean, like if I told her she needed to run five miles, she would faint, right? But at the same time, I do believe, and I, I, I've been, you know, listening to a little bit of David Goggins a lot lately. <laughs> and so maybe this is informing sort of my view of things right now. I do think that my parents' generation, they had to go through things that were absolutely extraordinary. And every day I need to remember how incredibly lucky and blessed I am with what I have. And there's nothing wrong with being grateful for that. There's nothing wrong with acknowledging the fact that I live an incredibly privileged life compared to the ones that my parents lived. And the reality of that means that, yes, I think my mother would rise to the occasion if she had to be forced into the media, if she had to work multiple jobs, if she had to do some of the things that I'm doing right now. I think she would be amazing at it. I think her track record proves that. And so, yes, I do think my parents, generally speaking, and certainly my grandmothers are just made of tougher stuff than I am. And I'm doing what I can, pushing myself where I can to grow, to fill their rather large footsteps. Bam. I just love the gratitude and the strength in that answer to that question. I just really do. I just want to highlight that for a second. I'm just like, 
I'm fist bumping the air for you right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's epic. Um, just quickly before we uh, before we move on from it, do you do you feel you still have triggers that you avoid for your eating disorder, and you're very you're very conscious of those? Yes, I mm. do, and I remember back in 2013. This is when I started running. You know. And I want to say this very carefully because I don't want people to think that this was a good thing. It wasn't, you know. I started running because I saw a bunch of Instagram photos of people saying before and after. Look at me before and now the after, mm-hmm. you know. And it took me a very long time to realize just how misleading and harmful those photos can be. I used to I used to post them myself, quite frankly, you know. And it, I realized that there's only so much you can put into a caption. There's only so much you can jam into a photo and I cannot control how that's going to be received by, you know, the thousands of people who who are going to look at that photo. Right. Just like, you know, people who posted it on Instagram before couldn't control how I reacted to that. And of course what it, would almost always do is it would put me into a tailspin of, oh, I got to go on a crash diet. I got to, you know, work out an hour every day at the gym and, you know, and I would spiral out of control rather quickly. So now what I do is I basically removed all of those from my Instagram feed. I don't see things like that anymore. And, you know, everyone, like I said, everyone operates within different limitations. Those happen to be mine. And I think that's been helpful, but I can't, I can't underscore enough how helpful it has been to me to, number one, see a mental health therapist, a mental health professional on this issue and work with one for years so that I could get honest about it. And number two, going plant-based and running has been for me. Huge. Yes. Wins. <laughs> They're amazing wins. I think the the, the the openness to talk about therapy is huge. Love that. The I love the... um. I don't love, but I do – I'm glad you brought up the the situation of social media because I know we talked about athletes earlier and how much pressure they're under and even people put themselves under pressure as a result of seeing athletes built in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Um, we obviously – social media is another one and probably now questionably because of our ease of access to images mm-hmm. – um, it, it could be the most harmful if, we, if we're not careful. So I'm really glad you, you brought that one up as well. So I love where this is kind of helping transition with respect to where you were with running, plant-based. Um, question, when you, were, when you were actually paleo, were you crossfitting as well? Were you in the complete triad of paleo crossfitting as well? No, no, I did not go that far. It was <laughs> merely, again, I was so like – I I was so single-minded about it. I was like, cardio is what's going to help me lose the calories. Like Mm. that's, you know, so I was running and I was eating no carbohydrates. I was basically eating not very much at all, but uh, certainly not carbohydrates. Whatever I was eating, I tried to keep it to lower than I think like 40 grams a day or some ridiculous number. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I, I do remember going paleo myself and I was like, I'll have sweet potatoes and that was it. And then I'd get home and my love for spaghetti bolognese <laughs> was just, I'd, it's the one meal that my family and I have just built our love of food over you know, uh-huh. unanimously. Um, it's, it's honestly the most nostalgic thing and it's, that's how I became like a chef, right? And mm. so I used to come home and I used to have to swap my spaghetti 
um, for Zoodles. I, I love I love Zoodles, but I'm sorry, Zoodles, you will <laughs> never be the same as classic pasta. I just it's it's in like my me opinion. and and cauliflower rice. <laughs> I'm like, uh, what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is this is um, this is ironic because I have a beautiful bowl of potato gnocchi uh, sitting um, ready for me to enjoy tonight after my workout, after having a delightful conversation with you. What's that, sorry? I said perfetto. Uh, I'm actually, do you you, you speak Italian? Italian? No. I mean, like I've done the Duolingo for very many hours. You know, we've been to Italy many times. I've been there five times. My husband is Mm Italian-American. And so I, I can probably understand you know, a reasonable amount, but I have very little confidence when it comes to speaking. Like I start to get really sweaty beyond so, words like perfetto and perfetto. <laughs> well, you, you, your enunciation was amazing. When he speaks to someone else in Italian, are you just like in awe? Yes. Like it is. So my husband has multiple superpowers. Obviously he's a musician and he is one of the greatest living pianists in, on the planet. Yes. So that's one of them. He's very driven when it comes to running and I'm very proud of his pursuits there. But his ability to speak Italian and it just sounds so beautiful mm-hmm. is really another thing that I was like, I wish I could be like that. I can't. It's it's It doesn't come as easily to me as it, it apparently did for him. Well, this Saturday I'm starting my first uh, level two weekly course. It's group mm. setting. So if you want to join, <laughs> it's via Zoom. So I'm going to do that weekly because I'm putting it out there to you, Joanne. I'm going to be able to do a cooking show in Italian. That's my... <laughs> That's my vision. That is oh, my wow. vision. Oh, wow. That be to... is beautiful. <laughs> I'm spiritually Italian. My, I've got a descendancy from it, but I've always wanted to speak a second language. So I'm both extremely jealous and impressed at your husband's ability to obviously speak native tongue, but also be American and uh, move the way, his, the way he moves his fingers up and down. Oh, I, I just love it. It is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gawking. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So you have this beautiful surrounding of support. You're both obviously uh, involved in every aspect of um, eating plant-based, obviously being active and culture and food, which is really, really awesome. 2016, you write a blog with him playing a beautiful music in the background as well. Do you remember the dish that you were, you were, you were uh, writing the blog over? Um, writing the blog. I'm not sure which one you like. Um, do you mean the the TikTok where he's like playing piano that's in the background? Yeah, yes, that's yeah, it. yeah. So he's playing um, Chopin in the background, The Revolution, yeah. which I don't even know what that is. Okay, but <laughs> apparently a lot of my TikTok followers did. <laughs> um, he's playing that in the background because he's giving a lesson to a student. You know, this is smack dab in the middle of COVID, so all of his piano lessons became virtual. And I'm making kanja jorim, which is braised potatoes. It's, mm. you know, a recipe from my aunt and my mother. And I'm just chopping away. I'm not saying anything, doing this cooking in my kitchen. And yeah, that that was among my earlier viral TikToks. Yeah, so this is what's interesting to me because <laughs> like, I feel like you skipped – sorry, when I say this, I mean this um, – not with any form of disrespect. I mean, like, mm-hmm. I feel like you skipped a massing step here. It says, <laughs> if you just, you know, all of a sudden, like, 
Oh yeah. So during lockdown, I just put a TikTok out and it went viral. And then um, I feel like that's up, like, is that what happened? Is that effectively that like, is I'm, I'm basically sure what up, happened? Right? No, it really isn't. Like I wish it. I mean, like that's the power of TikTok. Like I, I mean, like I literally like I remember this conversation so vividly. Because I was at work, I was at the firm, and one of my other videos went viral too. And it was like not about food. It was like, you know, day in the life as a lawyer during lockdown, right? And, um, oh, actually that video didn't go viral, but somebody commented on that video and I didn't like the comment and I responded back in my very tongue in cheek way that went viral <laughs> and I got a call. I, I got, yeah. I mean, it was like, it was, it was classic Joanne clap back and I got a call from my CEO. Okay. And oh, he's yeah. like, you know, I think that your tone was a little too condescending and I think you should delete it. So <laughs> I deleted it. And right before the CEO called me, I remember like freaking out because the head of PR at the firm had alerted me that he was going to call. <laughs> so I called my mentor at work and I was like, oh my God, Ellen, I'm so freaked out. Like, I don't know what to do. I don't want to get in trouble, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, I have 35,000 followers. And she's like, how do you have 35,000 followers? You literally just started your TikTok like a week ago. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> and like, before I knew it, I had like, you know, 900,000 followers. And that's, that's what TikTok can do. It's like within a week or two or three, your whole life can change. So <laughs> I'm just trying to get my head straight. Like, were you just, did you, uh, did you follow other TikTokers before you even post anything? Did you just yes. like, ah, oh, you did. Okay. So you were on TikTok yourself and having a go at it. I started TikTok like uh, sometime in July, mid-July was when I really started kind of watching people on TikTok. And as you alluded to, Dan, I started TikTok to watch TikTok. I didn't start it to create content. I was very intrigued um, by the sort of activism that I was reading about in the papers that was coming out of TikTok by this younger group of people and, and how they viewed the effective way to act within a political framework. And so that's why I went on TikTok because I wanted to see it. Like I was like, oh, I want to see like what, what is everyone talking about? This weird new app, you know? But, you know, I also was like, well, you know, I, I do have a social media presence. It's called the Korean Vegan. I might as well just throw up a video there of me chopping some food and see what happens. And I did a couple, um, but like that potato video, I think it was like my third food video or some ridiculously like early number. And I mean, I think it has like over a million views now and it, it literally changed my life. I, I can't say it any better than that. That's awesome. I'm genuinely absolutely wrapped for you because <laughs> I now, now being the competitive partner that I am would think, was it the pianist or was it the, the, tasty braised potatoes that led to the success of that very first video. Now we know it's actually you. Well, I, I think it could have been both at the time, <laughs> to be honest. I really think, because I really had nothing. Like I literally played such a small role in that video other than like chopping vegetables and throwing them into a pan. Mm. It was Anthony's voice in the background yelling at his piano student while banging away <laughs> on this show pan. I really think like helped bring it together. <laughs> I, uh, I also don't want to shy away from a very curious question. So at what time did the CEO call you? In um, 
it was the day after um, because I remember it went viral. The the clapback video went viral. And then the day after, like in the morning, I got an email from the PR head being like, uh, just a heads up, like everyone's talking about that video, including the CEO. And I was like, oh, my God. God. Um, and then I talked to him later that morning. I promised him it would be deleted and that I would never, ever, ever post anything on TikTok except for food content. And have you held that up? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> but I will say that after that kind of lesson, I started looping in my firm's PR team on everything that I did. Like they followed me on TikTok. So they knew what I was posting. I, you know, put all the obligatory, like this, you know, these opinions are my own. Um, I'm not giving legal advice. And, you know, we went through a period where I had to learn how to deal with my firm when it came to my sort of public persona. And they had to learn as well. And ultimately, I, I, I can't speak highly enough of my firm and how incredible they have been about my TikTok. I cannot just, I, I've got some, <laughs> my emotions <laughs> right now are like so complex. I, uh, like, where do I start in my follow-up to this? The fact that the CEO of your company that you worked <laughs> I know, it's pretty scary. about your TikTok, number one, amazing, like kudos. Number two, the fact he told you to remove a comment on TikTok that you said, amazing. Okay, so good. Uh, and then the fact that your law firm treated you like you were a partner posting something on the behalf of a company that you were representing the brand of, but you were just working in the law firm for. I just find that amazing. Like, uh, ladies and gentlemen, when you are posting on behalf of a brand, there's obviously a PR company usually involved and you've got a schedule and you've got to uh, both sign off on the copy and the captions and make sure it's right. And yeah, there's obviously a lot of things that go through to that one post. The fact that you were getting, you were just doing that for the company that you were working for is amazing. Congratulations. Yeah. I mean, I think that their position would be, you know, we have no official, you know, anything with the Korean vegan. She just happens to be a very talented lawyer at our firm who we never, ever want to lose. And I think that is their position. But at the same time, I am a professional and I, you know, work within the ethical framework of the legal industry. And so, you know, I wanted to be mindful of that. And I also wanted my partners to not feel uncomfortable around me. So all of those things sort of go into how I operate, you know, as both a lawyer and as a content creator. But like I said, my firm has been just like astonishingly supportive of me and I'm very grateful to them. Absolutely. I do not want to take away the professionalism of either party here. It was just the sheer magnitude of how big you were getting while still working at the law <laughs> firm that I'm highlighting. I was like, that is amazing. And it, it is honestly so, so awesome. So you're effectively a creator now. So <laughs> like within a very quick, as you said, couple of weeks, and I just want to understand how you picked it up because it's one thing to post 
like you did and, um, you know, maybe get – it, it maybe I don't say a fluke, but you just don't – you're not consistent mm. with it because you're just not you and you're not comfortable with it. You, you seem very comfortable and honest and truthful, but also like the – a very unique way of doing something I've never seen before. It's actually quite original to tell a story, as we've talked about with your compassion, uh, but make make topics that previously would not be as, you know, um, I would say fun-loving or not things you would mm. talk about, but they're very approachable because of the way you go about your content creation. So where did that kind of come about? Yeah, so as you know, my first video was not that. I didn't talk mm-hmm. at all. I, you didn't even see my face. Um, all you saw were my hands basically chopping vegetables and you heard my husband's voice and his piano playing. So there was really little of me there. And you're right, there are many, 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 many people who go viral once, maybe twice on TikTok and then, you know, haven't really figured out this the secret to continue to have virality and thus build a large following on TikTok or even some of their other social media platforms. I really didn't know what I was doing. Um, so I just like kind of kept doing what I did, which was like, oh, I'll just continue chopping more vegetables and putting them <laughs> into pans and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, that was okay. But I was like, I can do better than this. I can make this my own. And, you know, some of that like sort of competitive fire in me, you know, I was watching a lot of videos on TikTok. I was on there a lot and, you know, I call it R&D time, right? (laughs) And I was like, what about if I did this? Or what if I, you know, tried it this way? Or what if I kind of took a component of this video and a component of this video and then mashed it into this? And that's how one day I decided, all right, I'm going to do a food video, but instead of like panicked, like, you know, panically going through the step-by-step instructions through a 60 second tutorial, I'm just going to take it easy and talk about something that has nothing to do with the food. Um, and I don't even remember what it was. Like, I, I think it was, oh yeah, it was, it was about the time my, my mom and, and I walked into a Korean bakery and, and some lady was mean to me and my mom stood up for me. I thought that was a fun story. So I added that as the voiceover to me making chapche, which is a traditional Korean dish. And yeah, that went viral too. <laughs> and so as a result, that you do what any creator does and you learn and you realize what's working and you double down on it, which is, uh, you know, a pretty classic but sometimes um, neglected strategy. So this is awesome. And so how long into your create being a content creator did you really like, okay, this is my, this is the career I've always either wanted or this is the direction I'm now going? I don't think I could ever say honestly that, oh, this is the career that I always wanted. Mm. First of all, I never considered myself to be very creative. Um, Yeah, my husband will roll his eyes at that, but it's 100% (laughs) true. I mean, there's a reason why I thought I would excel in the law. I'm analytical. I'm, I'm not, in my mind, terribly creative. I think within boxes and I think within matrices and, you know, if then, but, you know, like those types of formulaic ways of viewing the world. So I never would have guessed in a million years that I would have a career in a creative slash artistic field, right? I realized that this might be a career for me when number one, and then this is very practical and, and I don't, you know, feel ashamed of sharing this, like I needed to see that there was some 
financial way of doing this. Like I wasn't going to jump from a great career into something that was like literally no man's land, no, no proof of concept essentially. Right. So when I started seeing that, oh, there is a way to significantly monetize what I have here, then perhaps it is an option. Once I allowed myself to think of it as an option, then my heart became open to, is this something that I like to do? Is this something that I would want to do? Or is it one of those things where it'll be fun for like the first month and then I'll hate it? (laughs) You know, I really didn't want to fall into that ladder trap. And I remember one morning I woke up super early because I wanted to edit a YouTube video before my 830 meeting for my lawyer job. And, you know, I was taking like a month off from running because I was nursing an injury at the time, which, you know, not great to have an injury, but man, the time that you get back when you're not in training, <laughs> it's, it's really unreal. So, you know, I wake up super early, I'm editing this video and it's like eight o'clock and I know I have to now transition mentally and physically into lawyer mode. And I remember thinking to myself, man, it would be so great if I could just continue editing this YouTube video, I would love that so much. And it was then that I realized, wait a second, maybe this means something more than you realize. That's something that I think a lot of us don't bite on though. And Mm. that's, what's interesting with this though, like being a lawyer and successful career, doing what you're doing. And I know that, there's always that wonder. People do have that wonder. Like, you know, like, oh, I wonder if I actually did this instead. But they will rarely bite, let alone hook, line, and sinker. So, <laughs> like, for you, when you did you just, after that moment, did it become a, like a, a louder beat in your heart? Or did you just start to look at taking slower? more time away from law practicing and, and, you know, editing more? Like what was, what was the next step involved in that for you to really solidify this decision? Well, I think there are a lot of points along the way. One of which was long before I even started my TikTok, right? I um, was listening to a podcast with, um, Uh, you know, a guest talking about this idea of failure being a necessary component to self-actualization and how maybe we need to stop being so afraid of failing Mm. and viewing it as sort of a way to growth. And one of the wonderful things about this idea was that even at the age, I think it was like 40 at the time, at the age of 40, I was still allowed to have dreams. I was still allowed think about maybe changing the the path, maybe taking a really, really, you know, sharp left turn at some point and doing something totally different. That was incredibly liberating from just a conceptual standpoint, but it was also terrifying. Like I was like, I don't know. Like, I don't know if I want to think like this. Like this means that I would end up doing things that are really antithetical to the risk averse person that my parents, you know, defined me to be. Right. But that was stuck in my head, right? And then when TikTok started going crazy, basically, and I started getting offers, um, you know, to monetize what I had, then, like I said, that gave me the security that I needed to sort of dream with my feet planted on the ground. 
that is very important, especially as a rugby player. You understand the importance of making sure that at least one of your foot is solidly planted on the ground. Otherwise, you're going to twist your ankle. You're going to hurt yourself, right? And so knowing that there was some financial potential, a security for me, allowed me to dream with my feet planted on the ground. And so often, I think people think that dreaming is just about floating up into the air. And people don't talk enough about how much privilege goes into some of that. I was very lucky, very, very lucky that, you know what, I had a very long career and a very nice job that afforded me the opportunity to save a lot of money, to put it aside. I I have a great 401k. I'm relatively financially secure. So I'm in a very different position than many people, particularly those who are 20 years younger than I am, who haven't had that chance to do those things, to have that nest egg, to have that financial wherewithal, to sort of, you know, stick one of those feet out, you know, and see what's out there. And so like, I think a lot of that kind of goes into it. So what I don't want is people to feel like pressure to like make sort of reckless decisions because they hear this wonderful story about a woman throwing away her successful legal (laughs) career to become a TikTok star. Like that's just one very misleading gloss of the actual reality of the situation. Can we can we hear some of the non-glossy adjustments? <laughs> because I know, like we we hear we do we do hear like the and and to, to, and complete transparency. No one shies away from the fact that it's it doesn't happen overnight, and, and there are a lot of struggles. But I feel you have a very honest voice, so I'd, I'm very curious to hear when you. Uh, you know, took more of that full time role with with the Korean vegan. Like, uh, firstly. Great name, by the way. Was that? Did you come up with that yourself? No, no. That would be the uh, first vegan among us. My husband who came up with that name. What a legend! He's a great <laughs> bloke. He's got yeah. sorry talents, and he's uh, on brand as well. So, yes. um, okay. So, you, you, what was like? I would say some of the struggles of this adjustment. There are a couple of them. Um, I'll start with sort of the smaller one, and probably very relatable. I think that you know how when people started working inside their homes um, because of COVID and lockdown. There was an adjustment period, right? The boundaries between home life and work life were now in, you know, inevitably blurred. And what, what does that mean? In some cases, it means that you're wildly unproductive. And in other cases, it means that you're basically married to your job now, right? And so there is a little bit of that uh, going on with me right now. I already had to deal with a little bit of that when we went into lockdown mode. Not as much probably as perhaps some other professionals because the nature of my career meant that I was sort of married to my job. So so that was not new to me. But now, you know, I feel like the blurriness comes from the fact that I enjoy my job so much. So it's hard for me to figure out boundaries. Like I'm not sure like when I'm working and when I'm not. I feel like I'm almost always working or never working. It's a it's a very strange concept. And kind of underlying all of that is the second much larger struggle that I'm having is I am now a small business. That's kind of what I view the Korean vegan. It is, you know, incorporated. It's a small business. And I now not I now need to start thinking like a businesswoman, uh, a business strategist. And that's not something that, you know, 
I did a lot of. Certainly, I did some of that as a partner at my firm, but it's my own now. And I really need to start thinking about, you know, what are the streams of revenue that are coming in? What do I need to double down on? And what do I need to move away from? You know, Um, what are the investments that make sense? Where do I need to put more capital in terms of my human resources as well as my financial resources? These are things that I now need to grapple with on a daily basis. And it's terrifying. It's like seriously terrifying for a woman who grew up having a paycheck every month. It's really, really terrifying to know that I am in complete and utter control of everything. And that can be overwhelming at times. Yeah, of course it is. You're talking about the battle of firstly understanding barriers of your personal brand. And that's that, that's what it is. You're talking about where do I draw the line on, what, like am I on my phone or on TikTok or Instagram to do market research? Am I on there to communicate with my community? Or do I just find myself now just being on there as a result initially that happening, but it's drawn mm-hmm. me to be there when I actually shouldn't, I don't need to. And that's that's a common thing for sure. And then the, the you know, it's just one of many things, but it's like, where do you draw the line of like, am I cooking for me now or am I cooking mm-hmm. for like, <laughs> for my work? And then there's the, uh, yeah, the, the business thing is again, and I think it's the one of the biggest ones that I personally early on dealt with is establishing and owning your name as a brand and as a business. And it's, it's a very tough one because, particularly with two brothers to talk about yourself like that. And then (laughs) like for you, you're now, you've gone from being this, uh, you know, amazingly successful lawyer to now you talk about yourself and your personal, like your personal brand. Uh, How do you handle that? I think I handle it the same way I handle everything else, which is like 1000% transparency and honesty. Mm. Like I, you know, I don't really know how to do it any other way. And in my view, it's the most effective way, at least for me. So for example, we just launched our meal planner, the Korean vegan meal planner. And I am like the antithesis of transactional. I think that is very cultural in me, you know, whether it's cultural, individual, I don't know. Like I don't like doing things like tick for tack or, you know, like I'm that person who never lets anyone pay for me, (laughs) you know, like at a restaurant. Right. So uh, I hate selling things, you know, like that's not like what I am comfortable with, but I am very clear that, okay, well, the Korean vegan is a business. That is the only way that I was willing to leave my full-time job to do this is to make sure that it would be a viable commercial success for me, at least one that allowed me to live, okay, like make a living. So like if that's the case, and I'm not ashamed of that, then I need to get over my compunctions about being clear about it to my community. So when we started this meal planner, which is, you know, part of the business strategy for the Korean vegan, I was really uncomfortable about putting it on my Instagram and saying, hey guys, I started this meal planner, but you have to pay for it. Because Instagram economy is so much about views for free. You know, it's like, you know, like I know people sell things on it, but for the large majority of people, it's like, no, you get to engage with me for views, okay? And those views may lead to other things. The direct-to-consumer approach is still sort of nascent, I feel like. And so I was very uncomfortable about doing that. But I posted about my discomfort. (laughs) Like, that's what I did. I was like, hey, guys, I have this meal planner. And you guys know that I'm a business because you all know that I 
you know, pulled out from the partnership of my firm. And I was originally incredibly uncomfortable about sharing this here on Instagram. But you know what? It is what it is. And I think my product is pretty darn good. And we're having a sale right now. So y'all should buy it. (laughs) That's basically what I did. And I think that for me, that's the most effective way I can do this, which is just be honest. Be honest about what I'm selling. Be honest about my discomfort about the whole process and be honest about the fact that I consider myself a business owner now. Awesome. I'm now going to get you to sell the Korean vegan. (laughs) (laughs) The planner. Because it is epic. I'm I'm assuming, uh, is it similar to, and I don't mean this in, uh, I don't want to say similar, but um, is it the same uh, software platform as uh, Rich Roll's one as well? Yes, it is. And I mean, we love that meal planner. I'm I'm a member of that meal planner as well, you know? And so it's like, I mean, now I get to incorporate my Korean recipes into the meal planner and I get to build a community around it. And it's just been so rewarding. We've been eating off of my meal planner for the past like 60 days. And it's so exciting. Like every day we wake up, we open the meal planner. We're like, what are we eating today? (laughs) (laughs) So if it is, uh, okay, I would say, I would love to test you here to be able to put you on the spot and sell your product. So go. And this is, and I want to make this clear guys. I just came up with this right now because I know I, if someone put me on the spot to sell me, I'd still struggle. So I'm uh, I'm doing as an exercise for me to listen how uh, Joanne does it. <laughs> so the Korean vegan meal planner was designed to be the answer, the answer and refutation of the diet. I don't like that word, the diet. I, I, I try to pretty much remove that word from my vocabulary. And the biggest struggle that I've always had with eating is this sort of instinct that I need to be on a diet. Well, I wanted to create a meal planner that said, no, I don't want to be on a diet and I'm not going to be on a diet. I'm actually just going to eat with intention for joy, for purpose, for health, how I define it. So the Korean vegan meal planner is tailored to each person who joins. And there are four different ways of kind of going about what you get out of it, whether you're in training, whether you just want to eat plant-based meals, whether you want to eat more of like sort of an 80-20 approach towards wellness. And it's designed that way because I don't want people to feel like they need to be restrictive here. This is for you to enjoy. There are over 2,000 recipes in the catalog of the Korean vegan meal planner. And I am adding recipes every single week, which means that there are recipes in there that you really can't find anywhere else. You can't find it on my blog. You can't find it on my website. You can't find it on my cookbook. It's the only place you're going to have like really a full experience of the recipe development of the Korean vegan. And I think it's incredibly reasonably priced. It's $2 a week, which is like half the price of a latte. And who drinks only one latte a week? (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Compared Terrible, very much related, and talks about exclusivity. Jeez, I'm just <laughs> taking notes. Unbelievable, unbelievable. No, I definitely, uh, Legends, if you are keen, we're going to put this link in the show notes. If you're listening in, it's meals.thekoreanvegan.com. So meals.thekoreanvegan.com. You guys know how I feel about anything that works for you. The best diet is the one that works for you particularly one where you have someone like Joanne providing pretty baller recipes that get you excited to come home and cook. 
just for yourself and your family and friends. So, uh, yeah, check that one out. We'll leave in the show notes. But we'll continue on with the podcast, yeah, and, we'll, uh, and just quickly, I want to go into what's it like to be a New York Times bestseller? <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, so – there are very few moments in my life where I have allowed myself t- to really be proud, okay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and one of them was when I got into law school. I, I, you know, cried and I jumped up and down and danced. The other time was when I was asked to work full-time at my law firm after my internship. Again, cried, was very proud. And the other time was when I made partner. Those are the three moments where, I, you know, and they're all related to, you know, the law. The New York Times getting on that list was the first time that I was like totally proud of myself that had nothing to do with my legal career. And what I find so interesting about that moment when I found out was, um, yes, I was very proud, but the first emotion I felt was like overwhelming gratitude. I I was so grateful to my team, to the women at, at my publisher, to my publicist, to my husband, to my family, to everyone who'd sort of supported me along the way. And I just, I couldn't stop crying because I felt like so indebted to them for everything that they had done and for being such cheerleaders in me when I couldn't cheerlead myself. And so that was like the first big emotion that I felt. Later that day when we had pizza and pasta, I was like, yeah, I'm a New York Times bestselling author. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so good. I, I think, yeah, yeah, I love the unique answer because, and I mean unique because you you, you didn't, um, it's very real. Your answer is very real. And I love, I love your gratitude. I really do. I, I think it's... Um, it's just something we we do talk about in terms of being staying grateful. But I think people listening to you and reading your words, it's it's so true, and it, it you know, and it's something that um, I'm like I'm grateful to read it and listen to it because I think it really puts an impetus for us all to to own um, and and be more grateful. So that's really cool to hear, and it, it, obviously it's a credit to yes, large. A large part is to the people you surround yourself with, and, and it's not just. I'm I'm sure it's not just the, the the year and a half or two years leading up to the book being published and going out there. It's also the stories that you were created through your family and tribes and tribulations growing up that you know help culminate these kind of um, opportunities. Mm-hmm. But uh, obviously, a lot of it, and most importantly, is you because <laughs> without you being you, and I, I will say this firsthand: it's one thing to write a cookbook, but there's recipes upon recipes in all avenues and resources for people who want to pick up that book and who don't know you, but are attracted to it in some capacity, or they do know you and they want to support you is because of what you stand for. And I think that's, I think that's what your, um, what the gra- gratitude comes from. But I think it's really cool to kind of see, wow, like people now see what I'm doing for what, I, uh, you know, what I'm doing and there's something outside of what I'm typically or previously known for and I'm, I'm being successful at it. Um, that is, that is pretty cool. So kudos. And is there another book coming out? 
There, it, well, I'm working on another book, nice. so I will be spending 2022 working on my second cookbook. Yay! Epic! Yay. I look forward to putting out some shorts and YouTube videos <laughs> on that one as well. <laughs> some heavy awesome. tastings for sure. But I'm, uh, I'm, I'm sad that this is something that had to happen virtually. I'm sure there's going to be a time that Joanne, you and I are in, in the same uh, either kitchen or even, you know, space at the same time. And I can't wait to eventually get the get the privilege to cook with you and, and talk. Maybe, maybe I can take a leaf out of your book and talk about something related to, I don't know, something male. Maybe I'll talk about male stuff as I'm cooking and that's my new way of doing things. <laughs> I think that sounds amazing. I will say that it always brings me so much joy when I see other content creators doing this because I'd, I'd never seen it before I did. And so now when I see other content creators cooking something and then sharing a story about their mom or their dad or their job or, you know, some somebody who, you know, they had a conversation with or anything, I think that's so important. And I think also somebody who has a background, a professional background in food, I mean, imagine the kind of stories that you can tell. And I think that would be amazing. Yeah, done. No, I'm very... I'm very inspired by you, so uh, I'm sure I'm sure you'll see them on TikTok very shortly. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking forward to yeah. it. <laughs> well, thanks again, Joanne, and everyone listening in. As I said, go check out the website, uh, KoreanVegan.com. Your Instagram, actually, you, you you start sell yourself here for me, Joanne. Where, where's the best place to get in touch or uh, you know follow you? The best place is definitely um, the KoreanVegan.com. That's where you'll kind of see everything. Um, probably where I am otherwise active is on Instagram, on TikTok, on YouTube, and on Twitter. And there I go by at the Korean Vegan. Epic. Whoa. It just popped up as well as I checked out your YouTube channel. Check it out. I'm definitely going to subscribe to that as we speak. How good. Well, Joanne, as I said, it's been a pleasure. Um, I really am blessed with your gratitude, honesty, and just being you. I always say that to, to listeners um, who get the uh, like, I get to hang out with them. So for someone like yourself, it's just you're so honest and you are compassionate. We love you for it. So on behalf of the Epic Table community and the team, as I said, who are massive fans, Thank you for coming on the show and I look forward to giving you a hug and cooking up some bibimbap in person. Oh, thank you very much, Dan, and the Epic team. Your hospitality was, in fact, epic and we will definitely be eating bibimbap together. Yay! 